0: Our text for this morning is taken from Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 25 and reading through verse 32. Paul is really... a uh, feeding on what he has just said in verses 22 to 24, and now continues. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Let him who steals, steal no longer, but rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful for uh, uh, the opportunity to attend to your word, we recognize how many uh, ways we can be distracted from, uh, from its beauty and its truth, but we ask that even now, Lord, supernaturally, that you would give us an opportunity to hear what you have to say, that our minds would not wander, that our hearts, Lord, would not yearn for anything other than the truth of your word heard and applied. And in these things to bring you glory and to find our own hearts rejoicing. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> there was a, uh, a young boy who knocked on the door of a, uh, an Italian artist's home. The, the artist had very recently died. And when the, uh, the widow came to the door, uh, the young boy said, uh, please, uh, could I... Uh, could I have one of the master's brushes? And she looked at him. She said, why? She said. He said, because I really want to learn to paint like he did. And so she beckoned the boy come in, and, and she took him into the, uh, the artist's uh, the, uh, studio, and she took him over to an easel, and she gave him one of the artist's favorite brushes. And the kid took that brush, and he took some paint and he tried just as hard as he possibly could to paint a masterpiece. And it looked awful. Just awful. And the kid just set the brush down and looked really discouraged. Then the woman just said to him, she says, remember she said you can't paint like the great master unless you have his spirit. Now it is a uh, It is true that by contrast, we all have the Spirit of Christ, if if indeed we are Christian at all. His Spirit indwells us, and yet, um, many times we don't feel as though that Spirit is in us at all. We feel powerless, we feel defeated, feel discouraged, find our own hearts wavering in faith. And so it is that we find in verse 30, Paul gives us this great admonition. He says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The root idea of grief means to give pain. And as Christians, uh, we, I think, truthfully can say we don't want to give the Holy Spirit pain. I mean, after all, uh, he is the one who has brought us from death to life. He has sealed us as as God's own uh, possession. Uh, He teaches us. He prays for us. uh, He indwells us. He will see us through to eternity. He does all of these things. How is it that we could, we could want to hurt him, want to grieve him? Well, we don't want to. But the simple fact of the matter is, is that often we do grieve him. We do. And that's why this command falls in the midst of this, this great practical list of, of things that we are told to do and not to do. Because it is these sorts of things specifically which do grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And if we are given to them, if we give no thought to the way in which we live, we do in fact grieve the Spirit to the point where his, his very activity in our lives, it's not that it ceases, but it certainly isn't nearly as observable as we might hope it to be. Paul puts uh, this command in the midst of this list. Remember that I said uh, just before I began reading that that Paul says that this list falls out from this, this great idea of putting off and putting on that he talks about in verses 22 to 24. He says, in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, put off, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Now, it's a, it's a real easy image for us to understand, isn't it? Take off one thing and you put on another. I mean, which of us has not done that at least today? Right? You took off your pajamas and you, you put on your, your Sunday go to meeting clothes. clothes okay? You didn't come in your pajamas this morning. I trust you didn't sleep like this. Right? We, we understand putting off and putting on. There are certain clothes that are appropriate for certain things, and certain clothes that are not. So most of us tend to wear nice, light, gaily colored clothes to weddings, right? And we tend to wear somber colors to funerals. Well, maybe not so much anymore. The, the closer we get to heaven, the more you know, more celebratory it becomes, I guess. But there are some jobs, for instance, that require a different kind of clothing. Right? Doctors and nurses, they, they, they wear clothes that set them apart from the patients. At least one would hope. Uh, prisoners, right? Prisoners have to wear a certain garb while they're in prison. And when they get out, they get to exchange it for regular street clothes. Right? People who serve in the armed forces, they wear one uniform as opposed to another. That's just the way it is. And what Paul is saying here is that there is a certain character, there's a certain lifestyle that those who belong to Christ ought to be living. They ought to to put on that kind of lifestyle and put off anything that even smacks of a lifestyle apart from Jesus Christ. And so it doesn't matter when you come to faith. It doesn't matter if you come to faith when you're 30, 40, 50, or 10. Simple fact of the matter is, is there's a way that God calls us to live and there's a way that he wants us not to live. And this is what Paul is getting at. And what he does in this particular section, he gives us some very specific, concrete examples of what that is. And it's highly, highly uh, helpful, I think, because it really does uh, pr- talk about what I said last week. And that is that it's not just enough not to do something negative, but there's a positive response, a putting on of some good, new, proper activity or mindset that really has to attend it. And so this is the way Paul moves. First in verse 25. Uh, there's a, a young boy and a stepfather who are having trouble uh, communicating. As it turns out the the man was really outgoing and the kid was quiet. The man loved to go fishing. The kid loved to read. Well, stepfather really wanted to try and you know, build this relationship with his stepson. So he says, let's go fishing. So they went on a fishing trip. The kid hated fishing. But he didn't know how to tell his stepfather face to face. know, He just couldn't do it directly. So he wrote it down on a piece of paper and he, he gave it to him. And the stepfather just flipped it open, looked at it, shoved it in his pocket. They spent four more days fishing. Well, when the kid got home... He went in, and of course his mother asked him, you know, how he, you know, had a good time and all that kind of stuff. He said, "No, it'd been miserable." He said, "What the thing he couldn't really understand was that he had told his father, or tried to tell his father through this note, that he hated fishing four days ago, and his father hadn't even mentioned it." And then his mother said, "said Son, your father can't read." (laughs) Now. See, the man had never shared that with this boy. One of the most important facts of his, his entire life, he had never shared with his eight-year-old stepson. See, Paul urges us to speak not just truthfully, but if you look at verse 32, he also wants to do so graciously. He says, be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another. In other words, there's, there's a sense in which truthfulness and graciousness in conversation sets the basis for any solid uh, relationship. If you don't have those two things, you are not going to have a good relationship. So perhaps that's why Paul begins with this first issue. He says, "...lay aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another." Now, Paul's Paul's words were really relevant to his culture because the culture in his day, people lied through their teeth. Everywhere you went, people lied. And that kind of of lying was in the church just as surely as it was outside of the church. And so he wanted to make it very clear that if you were really Christ's person, that you needed to set that kind of talk aside. Of course, as message is just as relevant to us today as it was to to the Ephesians then because we're we're immersed in a culture that oozes falsehood just as surely as as the Ephesian culture did in that day it it comes to mind about the uh, uh, the baker who was really ticked because he felt like the farmer was ripping him off every time he would get butter from the farmer he knew that he was getting less than a pound and one day he decided he was just going to be real careful, and he weighed it right out and sure enough that that farmer was ripping him off every single pound he got was less than a pound, so he had the guy arrested and took him to court. and when the guy got to court, the judge threw it out. You know why? because the farmer said well your honor i, I didn't i didn't have anything to." Uh, to to measure the weight with, he says, so I I just took a one pound loaf of bread I got from the baker and I used that. (laughs) Uh, I mean, that's just the same way it is in our own day. It doesn't matter if it's Main Street or Wall Street. It doesn't matter if it's Greenfield or Washington, D.C. People lie through their teeth. Everywhere you go, they lie and you lie. Now just think of how many different ways we do it. People falsely misrepresent their work. They inflate their own importance. They plagiarize. They cheat. They lie about themselves to people who don't know them. They, they speak of things that they don't know anything about and twist things that they do know something about. There are a thousand ways in which you and I, every day, lie. Sometimes somebody will ask you a question and say, oh, I don't, I don't know. Or you give less than a full answer. You're lying. We all lie. We all lie because it's become, if you will, a, uh, a survival technique. Almost unconscious. We just do it without thinking about it anymore. And Paul says, brethren, in the body of Christ... It ought not to be that way. And it's interesting, he says, not because it's a sin against God. Certainly we understand that to be true. That's what the Ten Commandments tell us. You're not supposed to lie. But he says here, he says it's because we're members of one another. In other words, we're already bound in a relationship to one another through Jesus Christ, and it's in that particular relationship in specifics. Specifically, that we are to tell the truth to one another. Better to say, you know, I'd really not rather answer your question than to answer it untruthfully. And so it is that Paul says quite simply, lay aside falsehood. Speak truth. Truth. If we're really gracious, we can afford to be truthful. And if we're not really gracious, then we know nothing of what Paul says in verse 32 about forgiving others because Christ has forgiven us. But Paul moves on now. The second thing he says is that we need to put off his anger. He says, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. It's interesting that this opening phrase be angry but do not sin is drawn from Psalm 44. And in that particular psalm what it does is it indicates that there is a time for righteous and good anger. Not not all anger isn't bad. All anger is not sinful. Because the word that's used here is used of a of a particularly Well, an over the top kind of reaction. All right? It's almost as if you just, you really lose control. It's rage. It's really deep seated anger that you refuse to get rid of. And we see God's wrath in Scripture. When He gets angry, He punishes, He destroys. When Jesus got angry in the temple, He overturned the tables of the money changers. And even his people, when you and I get anger, angry at certain things, we can get angry righteously, believe it or not. There was a woman by the name of Silbert. She was, uh, she was tired of seeing crime. She lived in Detroit. And uh, one day she was, she was driving home. She saw these two guys, these two muggers, holding up somebody on the sidewalk. So she drove her car towards them and started honking her horn and they turned around and leveled a 12, 12-gauge shotgun blast at her. She got even madder, so she chased them down. Well, they jumped in their car and sped down the, down the road, and off she goes after them in pursuit. Finally, they, uh, they ran into a parked car, and the police uh, got them and arrested them. And you know what she told the reporter? She says, I said to myself, I'm not going to let them get away with that. I just kept thinking of how that poor victim felt after being held up. And I guess I just got mad. Well, under the control of the Holy Spirit, anger can expose and check evil. And that's right and proper. There's a time to be a, a Wilberforce or a Wesley. There's a time to be a Martin Luther. There are times when those things really matter. But Paul also says, don't sin. You get angry, all right, but don't sin. And why does he say that? Because the tendency when we get angry is to nurse it, to make it personal, to cherish it, to embrace it, to allow it to give us a sense of power or or smug superiority. It allows us to think that somehow we have the right to judge someone else. When Paul says don't let the sun go down on your anger, it means don't let it go down on this awful rage. He doesn't say don't let it go down on your dispute. How many of you uh, have thought throughout your married life that you really had to settle the whole thing before you went to bed at night? Wow, this is a more mature group than I thought. Because <clears throat> you don't. What Paul is saying here is, is, don't go to bed enraged at each other. Set that aside. It doesn't mean that the dispute still doesn't need to be settled. It doesn't mean there's something, not something to work through. You may have to do that continually for who knows how long. Maybe years. But, if you have set the rage aside, if you're no longer nursing it, if you desire some sort of resolution, some sort of God-honoring conclusion to it, then you're no longer sinning in your anger. And that's what Paul urges us to do. Because, Because anger is destructive. Frederick Buecher put it really well. He says, Of the seven deadly sins... Anger is possibly the most fun. He said to lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are, you are given and the pain you're going to give back. In many ways it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. And that is true. Anybody who has let themselves be engulfed by rage, by anger, knows that ultimately it consumes them first and foremost before it does any other damage. And that's why Paul says, don't let the sun go down in your anger. Set the rage aside. If there are issues to deal with. Go ahead. That's fine. That may take some time. But work at it. And Paul does that because he says, I don't want the devil to get a foothold. I mean, it was Archimedes, right? Wasn't it Archimedes who said, you give me a lever long enough and a place to stand and I can move the world? Well, the devil can do a whole lot more than that with just a little bit of anger that you want to hang on to. And he can really do it to you. And he will. The next thing, in verse 28, Paul says that we're supposed to put off stealing. Instead to put on sharing. He says, let him who steals, steal no longer. But rather let him labor. Performing with his own hands what is good. In order that he may have something to share with him who has need. And notice what Paul's really saying here. He says, I want you to move from being positioned as a taker, someone who goes out and takes. Instead, I want you to turn around and I want you to receive, to be a giver, rather. Which is a whole different mindset. If you are giving rather than taking, it has changed your thinking 180 degrees. And that is precisely what he wants people to see. That instead of depriving others, they're actually working hard so that they can share with others. You don't have to live in any culture very long to know that theft is as widespread as stealing. Theft is as widespread as lying. I think it was in, uh, I don't remember the year, but the American Psychological Association had a symposium... And they were giving papers. And uh, the, the, uh, the topic was how much money is lost by businesses across the course of the year. And uh, the numbers were astounding. Now, this was some years ago. At that point, it was $8 billion a year was lost. First 10% was to clerical errors. The second 30% was to uh, shoplifters. The last 60% was to employee theft at that point it was over 16 million dollars a day employees were stealing from the companies they worked for and these were just clothing and department stores not talking about business and industry we're just talking about your run of the mill stores on the street 16 million dollars a day it's what we steal from people steal from one another Right? You steal from your boss's time. You steal from the government by not claiming all the stuff you're supposed to claim on your income taxes. Eh, you download a, you know, a, uh, a music video that uh, you know maybe you should have paid for or you decided you didn't want to pay for. Maybe you borrow a piece of software from a buddy that you really didn't pay the rights on. You know, should have, but you didn't. That's okay. What did we call it last uh, Last week almost innocent, we make those kinds of choices all day long. Just to shave it just a little bit here. Shave the truth. Shave our honesty just a little bit. It won't hurt. Paul says it does hurt. Because it means that you're taking for yourself. And you're not thinking of someone who wants to give and sacrifice, and help others. You're in it for yourself. And as small as it might seem, it doesn't change the fact that God wants to free us from our covetousness and our grasping. And this is one of the ways he does it. He says, instead, go out and work hard. Work hard enough so that you've got something to share with others. As a matter of fact, one of the, most, one of the greatest compliments in all of Scripture is given to the Church of Macedonia. Remember the church of Macedonia in 2 Corinthians chapter 8? Remember what they were commended for? The church in Jerusalem was starving. Starving! And this poor church in Macedonia, which didn't have any more money than the people in Jerusalem did, took up an offering so large that Paul had trouble getting it to Jerusalem. This is what he says now brethren we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given to the churches of Macedonia that in a great ordeal of affliction their abundance of joy in other words they were happy to do it and their deep poverty and he's talking about financial poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality so they want to give their heart wants to give they got nothing to give but they give it anyway they find it somewhere Without stealing, actually. He says, For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much entreaty for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. Those were the kind of men and women that God commended, and those are precisely the kind of men and women he wants you and I to be, who work hard, And who seek, wherever possible, to meet the needs of others around us, joyfully, begging for the opportunity to do it. Finally, he says we're supposed to put off unwholesome language and instead put on encouraging or edifying language. In verse 29, he says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. And, and really, this, this admonition continues right on through verse 32. Now, unwholesome word literally means uh, putrid, rotten, filthy. And most of us tend to think, well, he's talking about being obscene, using dirty words. Now, so you might be able to include that, but by and large, that's not what he's talking about at all. No, he's talking about decay spreading conversation. Conversation that likes to run other people down. Conversation that looks for weaknesses or mistakes that people make and exploits them. That just enjoys, enjoys humiliating and embarrassing and talking others into the ground. It reminds me of, uh, of. Uh, Story I once read of a, uh, a slave who um, decided that she uh, wanted to get back at people, so she, she began to drink poison. Not enough to kill herself, but just enough to, to get kind of sick out near the edge. And when she'd start to recover, she'd drink a little bit more. Pretty soon, she was able to fill an awful lot of her system with this poison, but it didn't kill her. But apparently, her breath was so bad... It killed it killed flowers and bushes wherever she went. There are Christians who are unwittingly just like this. To them tearing down others is as natural as breathing. They open their mouth, they slay a reputation, they embarrass somebody, they hurt somebody's feelings laugh it off, make light of it, justify it somehow. But they're just like this. And Paul says, that's not the way we're supposed to live. St. Augustine, really, he had exactly the same view. As a matter of fact, he had a little sign over his table. and It said, uh, he who speaks evil of an absent man or woman is not welcome at this table. In other words, you go to his house, You are not allowed to speak poorly of someone else. In fact, our text tells us what we ought to be doing. He says, only speak such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment that it may give grace to those who hear. In other words, we're supposed to talk to others and talk about others in such a way that it encourages and builds them up. It was said of Alexander White, that all of his geese became swans. Now think of that. All of his geese. What's a goose, right? You see them flying. What's the difference between a goose and a swan? Well, swans are much more beautiful. And he would, he would take someone and he would build them up. Not just, you know, not, not, not empty flattery. But he knew how to look at people. And speak to them in ways that was encouraging and edifying and, and heartening and strengthening, and in fact, we see that a lot in Scripture. Eliphaz says to job, he says, "Your words have supported those who stumbled, you 've strengthened faltering needs." And Paul says in uh, Colossians four six he says that our speech are always to be full of grace and seasoned with salt." Salt preserves. Right? And encouraging words build up. So you build up and you strengthen and you preserve people instead of tearing them down. Well, most of you, uh, your kids are up and out of the house. At least most of them are. But let me ask you if any of these things ever came out of your mouth when your kids were younger. Can't you do anything right Matter with you? You'll never learn. You're always breaking something. Here, let me do it. Not exactly constructive language to use with children. How about that's it? Way to go. I'm proud of you. That's fantastic. Good thinking what a difference not only to the person who receives but literally to the person who is saying it there's an enormous difference as well it takes place in one's own soul as you actually pursue the edification and encouragement and strengthening and building up of those around us and that brethren is something that we all ought to and can do every day In every relationship we have. Without excuse. I don't know about you, but every once in a while. Every once in a while. I walk around the house and I say to myself, how the heck did it get so dirty so fast? "I, I just cleaned it yesterday. You ever feel like that? you ever wonder just how in the world something could get so filthy so quickly well the reason is of course is that cleaning is a way of life it's not an event right we think of it as an event but it's a way of life you can't just clean something once and it's going to stay clean I don't know about you but you know speck of dust by speck of dust and those dust bunnies come back you know Sock by sock, and the next thing you know, there's, there's litter all over the place. It doesn't take long. Well, sin is like the dust and the clutter in my house. See, I, I, I want to limit all of it through one prayer and confession and repentance. Just be gone! But dealing with sin isn't, isn't a thing. It doesn't happen at once. Sin doesn't go away that easily. It is a lifestyle of pursuing the kind of life that God calls us to live in the way he calls us to do it. And the way he calls us to do it here is by putting off that which is is unseemly and not to be a part of the Christian life and to put on those graces which are and to do so by the very power of the Holy Spirit that he says is in us for that very purpose. And accomplishes that same work. As a matter of fact, that is the very hope we have. Because Paul says in Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Brethren, that's our hope now. That's our hope ever. That what God has begun, he will bring to completion. And at the same time, we have every responsibility to participate so far as it lies within us to do so to that very end ourselves. Let's pray. Father, there's not one of us sitting here that isn't guilty of every single thing that Paul said that we shouldn't do. And, uh, and I'm first and foremost among us, Lord, and it's, uh, it's always hard to, to see one's uh, real life reflected in ways that are uh, um, uncomplimentary at best. And yet it reminds us that we uh, ought never to fool ourselves about what we actually are, but that you have called us to be something very different and have given us resources to that end and, have, uh, and require of us um, uh, a mindset and a willingness to surrender ourselves to your working in our lives so that we can actually change. We ask that you would grant us uh, more of that today and even more of it tomorrow so that each day that we, uh, we live, we might be found uh, growing in likeness to our Savior Jesus Christ. Not because somehow we've been able to accomplish it, but because uh, the promise that you have given us in Scripture is true and that you yourself are accomplishing it at this very moment. That is our hope. You are our hope. And we give you praise for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.